The scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that, we were, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, you recall, you recall that uh, Hebrews, as we're making our way through Hebrews, is actually a sermon. Uh, it's more a sermon than it is a book or a letter. And, and like any sermon uh, that you would hope to hear, and I wish I could say every sermon you've ever heard from me, but unfortunately not true. Like any sermon that you would hope to hear, the logic train never goes off the tracks in the, in the sermon that is Hebrews. The, the flow of thought is impeccable. Uh, the author of Hebrews begins, you know, by, by saying to these people who were in danger of abandoning Christ, that Jesus Christ is the very son of God. He's the king of kings. He's the master of the universe. He is superior to all, and therefore his message is superior to all. So that's chapter one. He just lays the foundation. This is who Jesus is. And then what follows after chapter one is a whole lot of therefores. A whole lot of therefores. He builds on his case concerning Jesus Christ. He says, since that is true about Jesus, therefore, in verse 2, I'm sorry, beginning of chapter 2, pay close attention to what you have heard. Don't allow yourself to drift from what you've heard. Don't neglect this great salvation because there's no other way to be saved other than by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then at chapter, the beginning of chapter 3, there's another therefore. Therefore, consider how Jesus is greater than Moses. You are tempted to, being, you know, to revert back into your Judaism to avoid the trials that you're facing. You're, attempt, you're tempted to revert back into adherence to the law of Moses as the way to be right with God. But don't you realize that Moses, Moses was just a faithful servant of God. Jesus is the very son of God. Moses is like a servant in a house. Jesus is like the builder of the house. Jesus is worthy of greater glory. And then here in verse 7, beginning our passage for this morning, there's another therefore. And here's what he's going to tell us in the passage that we're about to look like. He's going to say, therefore, do not fail to trust the heart of God 
when you're facing trials in your life. Therefore, do not fail to trust the heart of God when you're facing trials in your life. Why? Because failure to trust the heart of God will lead to a hardening of your own heart over time. It's happened before, he's gonna tell them. It, it happened with your mothers and fathers in the wilderness after the Exodus, and it could happen to you. So today, this very day, as you're hearing me right now, don't wait. Encourage one another every day to stand firm, to stand firm to the end, because only those who stand firm to the end will be saved. That's the message behind this therefore that we're looking at this morning. So let me ask you, do you trust the heart of God when you face trials in your life? Are you persuaded that his heart is trustworthy? Do you know the heart of God toward you? I don't know about you, but when I face trials, I can be tempted to doubt the heart of God toward me. I don't doubt that the heart of God is good. I believe that the heart of God is good toward people, toward his people. But sometimes I doubt that in all of his goodness, he's actually turned toward me. And his heart is good toward me. That doubt is dangerous. There's a hardening that can happen in those seasons that can have serious consequences if we don't pay close attention to what's going on. If we're not quick to respond to the good and gracious heart of God that is in fact turned toward me, turned toward you if your trust is in Jesus Christ, turned toward all who will listen to what God is saying through Jesus. So it's all the more important then to keep our hearts soft, to keep them pliable, to keep them responsive, to keep them ready to trust and obey, to keep our hearts fit in that sense as we make our way through the trials of life. So there's three things we're gonna consider this morning as we unpack that message from these verses. First, the gracious heart of God. Second, the hardened heart of man. And then third, how to keep your heart soft until the end. The gracious heart of God, the hardened heart of man, and how to keep your heart soft until the end. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would help us to see and believe who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be in Jesus, in his sacrificial death in our place on the cross. And then, Lord, would you help us to acknowledge and to see where our own hearts are hard and we're inclined, where we're inclined to be on that journey uh, further and further into disbelief. And then, Lord, would you help us by your spirit to keep our hearts soft before you. We come with empty hands knowing our need, thankful that all the fitness you require is to feel our need of you, and also thankful that you supply what we need in order to faithfully follow you. Lord, help us to enter into this portion of your word with that heart of thanksgiving, thanksgiving, recognizing that even now in this season of our life, you will provide all that we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
So first, the gracious heart of God. Now, you may be looking back through the passage or thinking about what I just read, and you might be thinking, I didn't hear a lot of grace. I mean, I heard things like, God is provoked with them. Where's the gracious heart of God in this passage? I want you to look with me at the end of verse 11, and especially those two words, my rest. My rest. Now, Michael Kruger, in uh, his lessons on, on the book of Hebrews, which are excellent, does an excellent job of pointing out that behind every warning from God about sin and, and every way in which God brings discipline on his people because of our sin, behind all of that is a good and gracious God who wants his children to experience the blessings of what it means to be in a relationship with him. He wants us to know the fullness of his joy. He, he wants his children to enter into the rest that he offers. But behind all the warnings, behind, behind, all the, behind all the discipline that he brings is a loving father who wants us to know the rest that he offers to us. Now, for God's people in the Old Testament, that rest looked like entering the land of Canaan. That's what is uh, behind Psalm 95, which is quoted in verses 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the, in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. This Psalm 95 was written most likely during the, the, the reign of David. It was a psalm that the people of God would sing. It's referring back to the time of Moses and the Exodus, and we know that from the end of Hebrews chapter 3, picking up in verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And so, again, these, these passages, verses 7 through 11, 16 through 18, the author of Hebrews is pointing us back to a particular point in the history of God's people. God had made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You read about it from Genesis 12 on through the end of Genesis and Genesis 50. God had made a promise. I will lead you into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It will be yours. I will give it to you as a sign of my goodness to you. You will be a blessing to all the nations throughout the earth. By the time you get to the end of Genesis, however, the people to whom God had made this promise were in slavery. In Egypt. And then the book of Exodus picks up, and Exodus picks up with them having been in slavery for 430 years. So the people who were alive at that time had only ever known the hardship of life in Egypt. And then God came and He delivered them. He delivered them through Moses. He, he brought the plagues to convince Egypt that they needed to let God's people go. He, he delivered them through the Red Sea, parting the sea and leading them through. He led them, God did, by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, all the way through the wilderness to the rest that God had promised to their fathers. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about what that rest looks like for us. I'm, I'm very excited to talk about where this passage goes in the, in the weeks that follow and the, the rest that God is inviting us into. He's not inviting us into a strip of land in Palestine. He's inviting us into something so much greater. So more next week concerning that. But, but the thing that we need to see if we're going to take this lesson to heart is how those people refused that rest. 
all along the way, they had, they had grumbled and complained. But then in, in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, you read of the people right on the edge of Canaan. They are there. They've made it. God has got them to that point. God says to Moses, I want you to send in a chief from each of the 12 tribes. So 12 leaders go in. They are to spy out the land. They're, what kind of land is it? Just how bountiful is it? Does it indeed flow with milk and honey? What are the people like, right? 12 go, 12 come back, and they all say, it is an amazing land. 10 say, there ain't no way we're taking it. The people are like giants to us. There's nothing that we can do. And the people who had time after time along the way grumbled, grumbled yet again, grumbled to the point of saying, you know what? We need to find leaders who will lead us back to Egypt. It would have been better if we had died there, but here we are, so so let's go back. Can you imagine? Knock, knock, knock. Hey, Pharaoh, we decided it would be better to be back here with you. They were ready to go. And, And Joshua and Caleb, Joshua and Caleb said this, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us in. Now, if that had been a question, it would have been a rhetorical one. Of course the Lord delights in them. He had made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had delivered these people out of Egypt. He had provided for them every step of the way. He had brought them to the edge of the promised land. Does he delight in us? Yes, he delights in us. And the people said, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. I don't believe that his heart is good toward me. And there is the hardened heart that the author of Hebrews is warning us about. So let's talk about this hard heart. Let's move secondly then to the hardened heart of man. What what does the author tell us about the hardened heart in this passage? And when you look at verse 12, I want you to look there and then I want you to look again at verse 19 because there's there's a key word here that forms what's called an inclusio. It's like a sandwich, right? Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then you're gonna hear that echoed, and especially that word unbelieving repeated in verse 19 at the end of the passage. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Fundamentally, a, a hardened heart is an unbelieving heart. Everything that the author of Hebrews says between chapter 3, verse 7 and chapter 3, verse 19 is building on what it means and and where an unbelieving heart will lead. An unbelieving heart is a persistently unbelieving heart. Look at verse 9. Do not harden, I'm sorry, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They persisted in their unbelief. God was continuing to do these things and they continued to persist in their unbelief toward him. Uh, In in spite of everything that they had seen, right? Look again at verse nine, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary, they said, we are not gonna believe. An unbelieving heart is in and of itself a sinful heart, but that Sinful, unbelieving heart leads to acts of disobedience. And so you see in verse 18, and to whom did did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. That disobedience is described back in verse eight as rebellion. 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Their hearts, in fact, verse 10, had gone astray. They always go astray in their heart. And that, that's where the unbelieving heart leads, away from God. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now again, let me remind us of something that Hebrews emphasizes that we tend to not emphasize as much as we should. We tend to rightly emphasize the fact that God will preserve his people to the end. When Jesus said, all the Father comes to me, all the Father gives me will come to me, and none of the Father give me will I ever cast out. When the author of, when, Philipp, when, uh, when Paul in Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, we rightly rejoice. Because God has said, my grip on you is stronger than your grip on me. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, you better hold on. You need to persevere. God will preserve. You need to persevere. This is the danger of apostasy. Not that someone who is truly a believer can lose their salvation because those who are truly God's own will be preserved to the end. They will persevere. Those who maybe made a profession experience something of the goodness of what it means to be gathered together with God's people and yet don't persevere, but rather deliberately and ultimately definitively turn away, show themselves to never have been part of God's people to begin with. And the author of Hebrews says, we're not going to, we're not going to play the philosophical game here of, you know, which are you? What he's going to say is, you persevere. Let God's faithfulness be proven through your perseverance. Don't let go. This is, this is a grave warning here. It's a grave warning throughout Hebrews. Those who die without Christ go to hell. They find themselves forever, eternally, under the wrath of God. The heart of God toward all who will put their trust in him is that they know his rest forever. It's something greater than we could possibly imagine. But the warning remains. Now, you look at this, right? You look, you look at the people of Israel and you think, how could they have possibly turned away? How could it be? I mean, everything that they had seen, right? I want to remind you of the fact that these are your people and this is our story. We just came out of Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving is a wonderful time, wonderful or wonderful, when you're gathered together with your people, right? You may be sitting around the table going, these are my people, or you may be sitting around the table going, these are my people, right? You listen to Psalm 95 being read, you hear the story of Moses, and you may be sitting there going, these are my people? These are your people. Listen, we're all 
grafted into the olive branch that is the people of God. We're all through faith in Jesus Christ, children of Abraham. These are our people. And you may say, these aren't my people. I'm not like them in any way. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. Think about everything that they had to endure. These children grew up only knowing slavery in Egypt. These children were in the wilderness, thirsty, hungry. Now, uh, yes, God had made the way through the Red Sea. God had, God had provided water from the rock. God had provided manna from heaven. But how many of us have ever suffered like they suffered? And yet, we turn away. We forget God's provision for us. We need to hear this warning. And so let's move third then to how to keep your heart soft until the end. How to keep your heart soft until the end. Now, we've been talking about gospel culture here quite a bit. We, we went through a few uh, months ago a, a series on the touchstones of gospel culture here at Grace Church. We said that what we call touchstones of gospel culture, the indicators that gospel culture is present and growing, are the things that should be present in every church. There's nothing unique about these touchstones. Every church and every Christian should be pursuing wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Every church, every Christian should be open-hearted in their love for one another. Every church gathered together, every individual Christian should have their hope anchored in heaven. All three of those touchstones are here in this passage. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. The author of Hebrews says in verse 12, first, pay close attention to the condition of your heart. Right there, verse 12, take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. The author of Hebrews is encouraging us to ask some diagnostic questions concerning the condition of your heart. Do you, we can ask ourselves, do I doubt God's ability to help me through these trials that I'm facing right now? Do I think, you know, I'm not sure God even really cares for me or cares about me, or even knows what I'm dealing with in the midst of this trial in my life. I need to ask myself, am I quick to grumble when things don't go my way? Do I find myself complaining about my circumstances? Here's a hard one. Do, do I rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? Or because I've got this ugly, envious heart, do I actually... Oh, Lord, have mercy. Find myself rejoicing with those who weep and weep when others rejoice. See, these are all signs of a sinful, unbelieving heart, of a heart that's not wholly, fully set on Jesus. So what do we need to do in order to grow in wholehearted love for Jesus? <laughs> We, we ask these kinds of diagnostic questions. We ask those kinds of questions frequently. We recognize that we need to practice repentance as a way of life. We know that to keep our hearts soft and pliable, what we can do is be willing to say, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can be willing to, to take that prayer from the Book of Common Prayer 
Most merciful Father, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Now I'm going to stop, and I'm going to ask the Spirit to search my heart and help me think about the ways in which I have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. Okay. By what I have done and by what I have left undone. Oh, boy, now i got to think about not only the things I did that I shouldn't have done, but the things that I should have done that I failed to do. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. Oh, this is about the heart. This isn't about just what I think and what I speak and what I do. It's actually the orientation of my heart. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I am truly sorry. And I humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me that I might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Now, as we as Christians say, that's part of my spiritual, physical fitness plan, my my spiritual health plan. I'm gonna gonna take something like that. I'm gonna take the very word of God and search me, oh God, and know my heart in Psalm 139. And I'm gonna say, Lord, would you help me today to practice repentance as I confess my sin before you and return to you believing that your heart toward the sinner who repents is never anything less than the heart of the father in Luke chapter 15 toward the prodigal who returns home. You're always coming out toward me, ready to embrace me. Lord, help me to believe. Now, if that's your day-to-day existence as a Christian, your heart will remain soft toward the Lord. It will. Be willing to ask those kinds of diagnostic questions so that you can grow in wholehearted love for Jesus. But, but this is not a solo affair. So look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the author of Hebrews says, you, you can't do this all by yourself. Do you know one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews chose Psalm 95 for these Jewish Christians? to reflect on because they had actually, as part of their Sabbath evening worship, used Psalm 95 as the call to worship. They were very familiar with this story. And so even at the corporate gathered worship level, the author of Hebrews was building on something that was part of their lived memory, not not lived memory, but, but part of their worshiping memory liturgical memory of something that happened to their mothers and fathers in the wilderness so they could remember and be through the word of God exhorted and encouraged. But the author of Hebrews says, I want each of you all to do this for one another daily. Now, I want you to think about if we actually applied that as a church. If you got a phone call from someone or a text message from someone in the church every single day saying, hey, Stand firm. Don't, don't doubt God's heart towards you. Now, now, maybe, you know, after like 10 days in a row of that, you'd be like, okay, I got it. But let me ask you this. Over the past week, over the past month, how many times has there been when if that had happened, it would have made such a difference in your life? It would have made such a difference in that day, at that moment. So what if we were to be a church like that? 
We have to grow in open-hearted love for one another so that out of our love for one another, that kind of thing happens. See, you know, I, mean, I guess you could put that on a list and check it off. Did I text five people from the church today? <laughs> but, but what if that's just something that's born out of love for others? And what if you were willing to be actually, you know, we use the phrase redemptively vulnerable, to actually be able to say as you talk to that person, hey, I know what it's like to be tempted to turn away. Let me tell you the story of my wilderness experience so that you will not be tempted to turn away. What if we were that kind of a church? But then third, the author of Hebrews says, hold your confidence firm to the end, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's our, that's our third touchstone, hope that's anchored in heaven. The author of Hebrews is saying, look to that day that is coming. There is an end that is coming. There will be a day that you will die and be present with Jesus or Jesus will return to be present with you. But that day is coming. Hold on. Press on. As you do, your heart will remain soft. God's heart is good and gracious. Our hearts are often characterized by unbelief. He calls us to trust him and we constantly test him. We must keep our hearts soft. I hope you're hearing this message today because the Holy Spirit is speaking today through this word. The text tells us that today, I'm sorry, verse seven, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, I love what the author of Hebrews is doing there. He is reminding us that this word, he's gonna tell us in a few few verses, this word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. He's reminding us that the Holy Spirit is still speaking today. He didn't say in verse seven, as the Holy Spirit said, as the Holy Spirit says, the Spirit of God is working through the word of God today And the Spirit of God is telling you through this portion of your word, consider Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. You want to know the heart of God towards you, demonstrated in a way that goes beyond the ways in which it was demonstrated to the people of the Exodus generation. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and endured a wilderness experience unlike anything they experienced, unlike anything we have or will ever experience. Jesus endured that testing in your place so that the very wrath of God that's being warned about here would never be experienced by those who persevere in their faith in Jesus Christ because that wrath came on Jesus in your place. The Holy Spirit is still speaking through this word, that message of hope to you today. Don't turn away. Trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you and we give you praise for this portion of your word, for this great sermon from Hebrews that is meant not just for that generation, for the original audience, but is meant for us today. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are working even now through God's word. We pray that you would help us to take to heart all that you have said, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.